Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Jonathan Salkoff, who is responsible for business solutions at ServiceMax. I've known Jonathan for over 25 years since we first worked together at Sprint. Jonathan is smart, he's hardworking, customer-focused, and a great servant leader. He's a Navy veteran, he's a podcaster, and he's recently gotten into voiceover work for uh, audiobooks and for corporate gigs. So he was also one of my inspirations for starting this podcast. I'm happy to finally have him here as a guest. So welcome, Jonathan. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? <laughs> There's that radio voice, man. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, they say it's like sort of the voice voice and face for radio, um, <laughs> so to speak. I have neither. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's all good. Well, no, enjoying, you were I, seriously. Yeah, I caught, caught up a couple of your episodes and I like all of the, the theme here of uh, kind of going through the career story. And um, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm hoping that your audience gets... Um, you know, it gets bigger and, and people that are listening to it are, are getting getting some great uh, advice because I, I know I, I heard a few that I thought were really interesting myself. Well, you've got a great story to tell. And I think um, certainly being a veteran, you know, resonates with a lot of folks and um, just some things you've done with startups, too. So let's maybe start at the beginning. Tell me where you grew up. Um, sure. Yeah. So I grew up in New York, uh, New York City. Um, well, Started out in New York, she was born there and then spent some time on Long Island and then went to high school in the city um, and then uh, graduated from high school and went down to Annapolis, which was sort of a little bit out of the ordinary. I think a lot of my high school friends were scratching their head about that. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, mid 80s. It was sort of a, you know, that me generation type of thing. But um, I, I think. I was thinking about the Navy as a career path. I was thinking about the Navy as an opportunity for, um, you know, the education being paid for was a big part of it at one yeah. point. I was thinking about that, yeah. thinking ROTC and things like that. And then I stepped foot on the Naval Academy grounds at, um, in Annapolis the very first time I ever saw the campus, the yard. And um, I just- So that was that. your first time being on campus was when you actually started there? Well, no, it was a few months into my senior year. They invited me down to come visit um, okay. and spend a couple of days there. I think it was actually an overnight on a Friday night. They had like a campus visit and I stayed with some plebes, freshmen, and I was immediately just taken uh, by the, you know, I guess the tradition and the history of the of the whole campus. There's something in every square foot practically that you can learn from and I think walking around the yard and seeing, you know, what it, what it, I, I just remember feeling like, wow, if I'm going to be a naval officer, this is what I want to be connected to. This is what I want to feel connected with. And yeah. um, it really sealed the deal for me, you know, going to visit. So in high school, were you involved in ROTC? Do you know, we didn't even have an ROTC um, back in my high school in New York City. It was not a thing that we did. Um, and I think, I don't know. I mean, I got, kind of connected with the Navy and the Naval Academy um, through a couple of different means. But um, ultimately, um, you know, I just I started pursuing it and looking into it as, a, as an option. And the more I did, the more interesting it became. I mean, I did look at some other schools, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and there was, I remember my senior year in high school that the Navy, uh, the Naval Academy um, basketball team was playing in the Sweet 16 against um, Duke that year. And those were my two options. Ironically that, enough, right? <laughs> yeah, oddly enough, yeah. There, and so I was pretty excited um, to think about, oh man, I'm, I'm, you know, th that's my school, and you know, whatever. And then I, I turned down Duke ultimately, 
Um, and then, um, and then ended up there for grad school. I, I, I know you know that, but like I yeah. ended up at, at Duke for business school. And so I got to experience it in a slightly different way. Um, <laughs> but it was really, I think the Navy and the Naval Academy for me was just a, a means towards my education, um, the experience. And, um, honestly it was, I mean, at the time, and I still believe this, um, you know, ser serving, serving the country and feeling like I was connected to something larger than just, you know, the mission of my own self. Like I mm -hmm. wanted to be connected to something else. And I think, you know, I mean, that's a, I think broadly that's a theme that I, I, I still think resonates for me. Yeah. What, uh, tell me what else you did in high school that, uh, kind of led you, well, it just, yeah, I mean, yeah, a big part of getting, so I actually, it's interesting. I do interviews now as a volunteer for the alumni association for, um, candidates to the Naval Academy. So as uh, as high school students are applying to the Naval Academy, um, typically they get interviewed by what's called a blue and gold officer or a, a admissions liaison. Mm -hmm. That's what I do here in Reno with a couple of high schools. Okay. And um, one of the biggest themes out of uh, that we look for and that I that I look for as a as a as an interviewer now is is um, is leadership and um, and sort of uh, commitment to um, a cause or you know volunteerism and things like that so i was a i was a pretty um i was pretty committed to the swim team uh that was my thing and i was a swimmer starting the, you know from my days in summer camp um and i said i've said this to other people before like i can draw a straight line from summer camp as a camper to the naval academy and it runs through my swimming experience because i i fell in love with competitive swimming uh through you know, the experiences I had at, at summer camp and then got really serious about it in junior high and high school. And then I was captain of the swim team my senior year. And I think all of those things led directly to my being able to apply to and, and get accepted and nominated to the Naval Academy. Um, so I think, you know, when I'm looking at kids now and I talk to them, I, I definitely look for that, you know, consistency of a uh, of experience and also leadership if they're you know a team captain or you know class president or something like that it, it really stands out yeah did you swim at the academy do you know i didn't actually um because that's, a, that's a pretty on. brutal sport i know you the practices yeah, and the time you, know, you invest it's a it i still swim now so i mean i'm still into it now and i still do a master swim club although i'm you know kind of taking a little bit of a break during the covid times but um I um it has changed my life. I mean, swimming has been a part of my life since I was like seventh or eighth grade. And so, um, and I know swimmers who, you know, started much earlier. And in fact, my kids started when they were, you know, five, six years old and on swim teams and stuff like that. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think I try to walk on the coach. The, I did try to talk to the coach on my one visit and, you know, he was really not all that receptive. I mean, he had his choice of, you know, recruits. So I try to walk on and, you know, he was not very receptive. So I, I ended up um, rowing crew at the Naval Academy for, um, I guess, most, well, all my freshman year, all plebe year, and then part of my sophomore year, I, I was rowing, um, which is another brutal sport. Yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, a lot of swimmers and former wrestlers and cross-country types end up at the boathouse because just kind of where they end up at the Naval Academy. Although now there's a lot more recruiting in, in, uh, in rowing. Yeah. Um, so I rode for a little bit and that's also something I do now. I have a, you know, kind of a machine at home that I can row on and, um, it's just a, you know, sort of a lifelong fitness thing that I think, um, 
has been part of my, you know, part, part of my life since I was a kid, but um, yeah. Did, uh, swimming was, yeah, swimming was, yeah, varsity swimming was a, was a tricky, I mean, it was hard to, I mean, I know a lot of swimmers at the Academy and a lot of them, uh, and same with my boathouse friends. I mean, a lot of them un, ended up in Navy SEALs. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is certainly physically exhausting, but the mental capacity is like a completely other world yeah. in terms of that. If anyone has read the uh, Goggins book, man, it's pretty insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, high school, you were, um, good in math, good in science. Um, I see you majored in English, so I imagine that uh, that was probably a strength of yours. Um, you know, it's interesting. I went to the Bronx High School of Science, so it's one of those schools, uh, one of the original sort of magnet schools. Take a test to get in. It's that type of thing. Um, it, it became the model for a lot of uh, communities around um, the country to do that type of thing. Um, and um, yeah, science was a big part of that. Um, and, and math, of course, but we also had a really strong language program. I mean, I, I took AP French and I took AP uh, English Lit. Um, I had a really great, um, strangely enough, I had a really great term paper writing class in high school. I used those techniques in my senior year of uh, at the Naval Academy to write my senior thesis. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I think I was just really fortunate to be in a school, in a high school that was um, very competitive, obviously to get in, but also very supportive. I, I mean, I look back on it and I've, I've talked to my kids about this. My kids, you know, one of them's already finished with high school. One of them is a senior and I, and I'm still close with a, a, a large group of like that cohort of group of friends of mine from way back. And we still stay in touch. We have like, you know, group chats and, you know, sort of create, you know, we do our zoom chats from one, you know, during the COVID times here. And yeah. Um, I always remember that group of people being the most supportive and most, um, yeah, I mean, like even the guys who were ahead of me in the class in our high school, I mean, they, it wasn't competitive. It just felt really supportive and collaborative and, and just, you know, if you, everybody celebrated everybody's um, successes, it was a yeah. really phenomenal group of people. That's great. Cause you don't always find that. So, and definitely kind of makes you, you know, appreciate, you know, if you're all thinking about each other's being on a team, but I know like two of my kids went to a magnet school as well. And so you are sort of this smaller subset of a bigger school. And I think you know, because you've had to apply and you sort of appreciate what you've got in your opportunities, because I, their experiences were very different than, than my high school experience for sure. Did, uh, so coming out of high school then, cause you sound like you were pretty good in a lot of different subjects. Were you thinking about studying certain certain tract or, or did um, Annapolis, you know, try to steer you in a certain direction or what were you thinking coming into college? Um, I had it in my mind for some, re for, well, for, I mean, a couple, a couple of things. One is I, I mentioned summer camp. I, I did a lot of sailing um, at summer camp and I, I fell in love with the sport. Um, and I always thought, Oh, one day I want to design the 12 meter. That's going to win the America's cup. Like I used to follow the America's cup, you know, out of the New York yachting club. And that was you know, kind of a, kind of a thing. I don't know mm -hmm. why. I had this obsession with it and I got to the Naval Academy and I declared initially um, for naval architecture because I thought I'm going to learn you know ship design and then I'm going to learn how to build ships and eventually that's you know I mean I had this in my mind and as it happens um, I took a bunch of placement exams in my plebe summer and so let me just you know sort of say a little sidebar here plebe summer is not a time to be taking academic exams like it is it's <laughs> 
I mean, Tell me what that is for the, and for those that don't Well, know. so Plebe Summer is when you show up at the Naval Academy, it's sort of your transition from being a civilian to being in the military. I know that, it, you know, people, you know, kind of compare it to boot camp. I don't think uh -huh. it's quite as bad as that in some respects, but it is pretty hard. And you're in Maryland, in the Maryland summer heat and humidity for six weeks, um, learning how to be become a midshipman. And... I have a lot of stories that go along with that. And, you know, but, but the funny thing is, is that they, they also have to place you in your academic stuff. And so aside from having your, you know, placement exams that you've already taken, they give you these opportunities to take, um, you know, some other exams. And I took um, a math test and I took, you know, calculus and I took a French placement exam and I took an English, you know, lit, you know, I mean, there was a whole bunch of them that they sort of throw at you. And, and, I think some of them were voluntary. You didn't, I mean, if you were just going to do regular track, you know, you just kind of didn't have to take them, but I was like, okay, I think I can, you know, I can place out of some stuff. And so I ended up placing out of all of my language requirement because my, again, my high school was so strong and I had taken AP uh, French mm -hmm. that I was, you know, I was placed out of any language requirement that I would have had, had to take if I were in a non engineering major. Yeah. And then I placed into an honors track of English and I placed into, yeah, an advanced um, math track where I, I skipped, you know, you know, a semester of calc. So I was already on a path towards going, you know, sort of academically high, you know, kind of high track at the Naval Academy. And I got sort of tag teamed in my freshman year, my plebe year at the Naval Academy with my English teachers. And I think they sort of had it in the idea that we were going to be the people who were in this one section were, you know, good, you know, good options for English majors. And they convinced me, and I saw the, the, the I saw the, the logic in this, that I was going to get all the engineering that I needed, regardless of what my major was. Like, that's just a requirement at the Naval Academy. So when I say I'm an English major, I actually have a Bachelor of Science from the yeah. Naval Academy. So they don't actually give out a Bachelor of Arts. So I have a BS in Honors English. So yeah. go figure. <laughs> well, because I was in I was in Navy RTC at Tech, and yeah. I was there for my freshman year. And you take a lot of like naval science classes and understanding, yeah. you know, how you know water displacement works and free service area, and you have to understand a lot of those concepts just at a basic level. And I'm sure at the academy over four years, you got a lot of understanding. Well, the about core that. curriculum there is designed so that anybody who graduates technically could go to the nuclear power program. Yeah. So you have to have enough electrical engineering, chemistry, physics, um, thermodynamics. I mean, all of that is core classes. So on top of that, I have my English class mm -hmm. classes and my English honors major. And then I also did a research project my senior year as a, a senior thesis. So I had like a special designation called Trident Scholar. So anyway, when I graduated, I actually selected into the nuclear power program. So I proved that sort of rule, which is if you, you can even be in, you know, in the nuclear power program, if you're an English major from the Naval Academy. And that's yeah. pretty, you know, it's sort of, it was uncommon. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't sort of the normal path. And in fact, when I interviewed to get into the nuclear power program, the Admiral, who was not Admiral Rickover, who was famous for this, but the one who, um, who uh, I guess, came after him, uh, he was like, what do I need with an English major in the nuclear power program? And I just remember like sort of stammering through an answer, but apparently he took it, so. <laughs> So, because uh, I've, uh, you know, I, I knew my experiences from, from RTC and I had a friend of mine who was at the University of Florida and is a Navy RTC scholar. And, you know, you have these summer cruises um, and uh, in Annapolis, do they do something similar to other RTC programs or do they have something unique for that? Oh, 
Clear. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I mean, the summer, I don't think I had any leave um, after my freshman year, after plebe year, I went home for a couple of weeks and then I had a little bit of time at home. And I remember also going on a summer, summer uh, training cruise. My summer training cruises were um, yeah. On you, you get to do kind of a, a whole mix of things. So during the summer um, after freshman year, you go and you spend, you know, typically, anywhere from four to five weeks on a, well, back when I was doing it, it's a little different now, but you would spend four to five weeks on a ship or as part of a um, squadron or wherever, mm-hmm. um, but typically on a ship and and you would work with the enlisted folks. So you would basically wear dungarees and a, you know, and a, you know, you'd be kind of a spending time with the enlisted folks. Now, they all knew that you were on track to becoming an officer. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't, you know, like they were sort of, I mean, they knew what, you know, what your situation was, but you learned a lot from the death plays, so to speak. Yeah. And then the summer after your sophomore year, you get to do kind of a mix of things, you know, including Marine Corps, spend some time in Quantico, go down to Pensacola, do some, you know, Naval aviation um, and a couple of other things. I filled that summer with some classes too, because I knew that I wanted to kind of get ahead and, get my schedule clear for my senior year to do that, the Trident project. So I, um, I started planning in my sophomore year to do that. And then right after my junior year, um, right. As I became a senior, uh, I worked as a, a you know, senior, uh, I should say as a junior officer on a ship for a while. I also went and did, um, what's called, well, I, I was, I was part of the core to train the new plebes. So the new plebes came in and I was part of, I was a, a platoon commander with, you know, 35 plebes to, to train and a couple squad leaders and, um, you know, from the class of 94. So, or no class of 93, sorry, they were class of 93. So yeah, it's just like, I filled my summers up. Like I had classes and uh, training and you, you get to do like a whole bunch of stuff around the Navy, which is, you know, kind of a, the idea is to give you a flavor for what you might want to do in the Navy. Yep. Um, and the idea is to give you some exposure around, you know, to the different warfare uh, options. So out of all those experiences as you're a senior um, and, and I'm tell me a little bit about the Trident uh, scholar in just a minute, but were, did you have a good sense of what you wanted to do after those experiences? Yeah, I mean, I felt like driving a ship was kind of the thing. I, I felt like that was the backbone of the Navy and, you know, it always will be, you know, kind of mm-hmm. sort of surface warfare type of thing. Yeah. Um, but I wanted it to be a little different for me. I wanted to have um, kind of a uh, a more, um, I, I wouldn't say interesting experience. I, I just, I wanted to go with the nuclear Navy because I thought that had its own special um, sort of, designation. And also I felt like it was a little bit of, you know, I wouldn't call it prestigious, but it was sort of like this, it set you apart as a surface warfare officer that you were also a nuclear um, warfare, you know, nuclear, not with nuclear warfare, but nuclear um, propulsion, you know, qualified. Yeah. So I ended up on an aircraft carrier and, you know, I mean, learned a lot about, obviously, you know, there's a lot of training that goes into becoming a, a nuclear engineer in the Navy, but, um, you know, going through nuclear power school was, was its own experience. Um, yeah. So, and, so uh, come when you graduate, uh, like what the day after graduation, do they pretty much have your time booked from that point? Do you have some time off or what, what's the starting point going into the, um, after yeah, graduation? I mean, it, it can, it can be pretty well programmed. I mean, they give you, um, they, they give you like a 30 days free leave if you want to take it up to the point that you go to your first duty station. Mm-hmm. So I took, I took some time off and, um, 
I went to Australia, like just kind of on my own backpacking and uh, did um, kind of hostels and kind of fun, kind of a fun trip. Um, I did that, you know, for about three and a half weeks. And then I started nuclear power school, which was at the time in Orlando, Florida. Uh, they've since closed the base down there, but, um, and that's a six month period of time where you're, you know, in class, you know, eight, eight hours a day studying another four and taking, you know, exams for six months. Yeah. And, and yes, yeah, so everything's programmed for you for the first, you know, for the first period of time. I mean, I know that my classmates had, um, a different experience who went into, um, aviation because there was a, a backlog of pilots getting through that pipeline. So that took them a lot longer. Yeah. Um, so like I, I was on my first ship, um, actually done with my first duty tour duty. Yeah. Duty rotation. Um, and some of my friends who had gone aviation were just getting to their, um, what they call reserve air group, um, mm -hmm. which like the, before you get to the actual, um, air wing. So uh, it's a lot of technical stuff here, but basically I was rounding third on my way home <laughs> for like five years of service and they were just, you know, getting up to the plate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, w which I think, you know, once you kind of graduate, I would imagine you'd want to really start, you know, getting into the thick of what you've been studying for so long. So you're, well, I mean, I didn't want to put it off. That's for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I did apply for, and I was a finalist for a Rhodes um, Scholar. So, I, I mean, I would have ten, taken two years and gone to, you know, gone to Oxford. Oxford. But, um, you know, I, I didn't. So I was close. You know, I got, you know, you know, sort of got, I saw the brass ring, but I, nice. didn't, I get, didn't quite get it. But I mean, I will say that I would have taken that two years in a, in a minute. Like that was, you know, available to me. Um, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I mean, it was one of those dreams I had, I mean, again, I, I met a, I met a, uh, a friend, you know, in high school whose dad was, uh, had been at West Point. And I think that was actually another motivation. I, mean, I forgot about this story, but like this woman I met from a girl, I mean, high school friend of mine, her dad was, um, pretty, you know, high up, uh, he'd gone to West Point. He was a brigade captain. He was first in his class. He was also a Rhodes scholar. So like that was sort of an inspiration, I learned about, you know, when I was, a, I think, a sophomore in high school. And, you know, I always like wondered, like, what would it be like to, you know, kind of shoot for it all, like, go for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. So yeah. that's he was a pretty impressive guy. I mean, walk into their apartment and they lived on Park Avenue, naturally. <laughs> and it was like, there's the Heisman Trophy on his, you know, on his whatever mantle. And you're like, for real, the Heisman, the actual Heisman Trophy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good person to know for sure. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting, you know, sort of like, I think I won't be coming back to this house. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the first ship that you were assigned to? Uh, I was on the USS Philippine Sea. It's a, um, an Aegis cruiser and was based out of Mayport, Florida. And back in the day, it was pretty brand, pretty much brand new. Now it's, you know, one of the older ones. Um, yeah. So I got there and it was just out of Bath Ironworks. I mean, some of the plank holders, which is like the original ship's crew, we're still on board, uh, but they started to turn over. And then I got on board. Um, I remember this so vividly. I got on board on a Monday and we were deployed on Wednesday. Like I didn't even unpack. I put all my stuff into storage at a friend's place and um, we got underway for six months. So out to the, you know, go out and do some exercises off the Atlantic coast, you know, pick up the whole battle group from both Norfolk and, you know, and we were in Jacksonville or Mayport, Florida. And then we um, transited across and we were in the Mediterranean for almost six months. 
that's pretty wild for somebody who's, you know, right out of school plus six months of training. Um, that's, that's pretty amazing. The, um, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, it was the only way I think you, I mean, you, you don't have any time to like worry about stuff. You've got to, right. Yeah. You got to just kind of figure it out. And some of the other folks that I've known they've gone in the military, they've all had to make an adjustment with, especially coming in as an officer, you know, you've had some experience with your summer cruises and those experiences, but you come onto a ship, you're given, um, you know, a team to command. And some of them have been in the military for 10, 20, 30 years, right? Some of them are 50 and they got kids that are grown or whatever. How was your experience and your transition to managing teams like that? Um, I was really fortunate to have um, some fantastic leaders on that first ship, like people that I uh, will forever be measuring myself against, I guess mm -hmm. is the way to describe it. I think um, I had um, John Chandler, who was the operations uh, department head, was, I think, one of the most influential and inspirational people I've I've ever worked for. And then soon after I got to the ship, we had a change of command and the new captain came on board and was in the middle of deployment, in fact. And um, Jay Becker, he was the captain. I, I can't I can't imagine being a junior officer and having a, a better combination of department head and and skipper uh, on a ship like for junior officers like me who were eager to, you know, be in the Navy and do all the things and learn all the things, um, there were two that you could not have had two more knowledgeable and capable people to work for. What, uh, what made them so special? What were some traits of theirs? So John Chandler was a, um, he was, we used to, <laughs> It used to drive me nuts. Don't get me wrong. There were times like he was, he, he could be such a micromanager at times, but that's, uh, let me just say that he was in the details, but also had the big picture. He had a great combination of being in the details, but also having like, you know, a six month, 12 month, you know, 18 month sort of horizon on, you know, what we were doing as a ship. And he had to, because he was the operations guy. We had to be thinking, Hey, we're going to be doing this operation in, three months, we need to back up from there and have these exams scheduled and these inspections. And he was just fantastic at that. But he had the big picture in mind of like, how do we win the battle? E? How do we, how do we excel as a ship? Mm -hmm. um, so he had both. And then I will say that as a leader now, so that's his management style. And I, and I, and I sort of differentiate between the two, his management style was very much in the weeds at times, but I will tell you as a leader, as he began to trust you with those details he stopped asking you about them. Yeah. So there was a point at which I realized like I was doing all the things he asked me to do because he had trained me to think this way, but he wasn't asking me, he wasn't hounding me the way he did when I first got on board. Yeah. And then the second thing that he did that I remember very distinctly was when he got to the point where he trusted you and you know, that took a little while and you had to you know prove yourself. So, I mean, it wasn't like it, automatically happened yeah it wasn't like after 30 days you're on your own no no no, no. Yeah. He, he was really you know he had a program for you know training his young his young junior officers what he would do was um there were times when i had uh, i would have something that had to get you know signed off by the captain whatever it was I, I mean you know some you know thing i can't remember you know i can't even think of an example but 
you know, as he began, as you gained his trust and his respect, he would say, he would, he, he would start out, you would go with him to the captain and he would like sort of, he wouldn't explain it for you on your behalf, but he, you would be there to kind of provide any details that he might not know. But then soon after he got your, you know, kind of, he, he had confidence in you, like he would just send me to the captain, just hey, take this up to the captain and, you know, make sure he knows this, this, and this. And so there was this moment or moments that, you know, started to happen in the six, you know, 12 month period where like, I knew that he trusted me. He would just say, yeah, go take that to the captain and, you know, get it signed off. And that's, that's it's an incredible feeling of empowerment. Yeah. Um, and, and really trust and respect that goes both ways. It's kind of, you know, the, the sort of thing that you read about in leadership books. And then I experienced it firsthand. Do you, do you feel like he was one of the exceptions in the military? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, so most of them was kind of command and control, top down management. Not even that. It was like, you couldn't do something and then, you know, your department head wanted to take credit for it. (laughs) Okay. I mean, like, because they were like, when I got to the aircraft carrier, which was my second ship, the department heads were in like a dogfight, literally to be the, you know, number one department head. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so they wanted all of that visibility with the captain. Like I hardly ever got to see the captain on a carrier. Now, to be fair, I was only a lieutenant at the time. And there were tons of, you know, officers more senior to me who were, you know, needed that FaceTime with the captain. But, you know. Do you feel like your academy uh, credentials uh, differentiated yourself from, say, other junior officers? Um, yes and no. I think um, I think to some degree uh, it can be a hindrance because people will be like, "Oh, you know, we're another ring knocker." You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, there are times when it it certainly you know wasn't a bad thing to have. I think in the end, it's you know, um, I I served alongside. In fact, most of the men were at the time it was only men in my wardroom. Um, that's obvious since since changed. Right. Um, were not academy. And I always felt like they were every bit as capable because when we got on the ship, it didn't matter, you know, right. like that much. Yeah. Now, I will say I had more time in uniform and I knew I knew my way around certain things in the Navy. But like by the time you're an ensign or you know, lieutenant junior grade on a ship, like that's all, you know, you know, that's like all behind you. It doesn't really factor in. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine just like, you know, even in a uh, civilian job, you know, once you once you start work, you know, your your GPA is less relevant and what's hanging on your wall is probably less relevant. It's can you do the job? How effective are you? And you have value to the organization, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. So you, you move from a, a surface, um, a fairly new uh, ship to an, you said aircraft carrier, which is like yeah. a whole different world, right? Six thousand plus people on a boat. What uh, what was that transit? How well one? How did it happen? Like yeah. you put in for a change like that, or is that just a normal rotation? Or yeah, like? yeah, it was a normal rotation. I had um, because I was surface warfare and nuclear um, engineering. I was destined to work on an aircraft carrier. So um, and um, that was just you know part of the the plan. I did try to extend on the first ship because we were getting ready to go on another deployment and I was excited to go again because I really, all of the preparation for that was was going so well and we really enjoyed it. But got uh, rotated over to the USS Enterprise, which 
was at the time the oldest aircraft carrier in service commissioned in and you know killed late in like 61 62 time frame and it was it was it the pro in the process of going through a four-year overhaul so when i got to that ship it had not been to sea in almost four years and it was <laughs> so you went very, from the newest one of the newest ones to one of the oldest yeah, ones it was a very big shock and but what was good about that was you know the men that were working for me in my division were being you know prompted by me and and some of my senior enlisted uh you know personnel you know to really be thinking about going to sea because we were getting the ship ready to go to sea and we spent the you know the six months that i got there the first six months was just getting ready to go out to sea and i had a large division that was given to me um normally it was a senior enlisted position senior uh, I should, I, I, it's it's not actually it's like what they call a mustang position which is somebody who's like a senior enlisted who becomes a commissioned officer at some point in their career mm -hmm. typically a much older much more seasoned um division officer um but they gave it to me and i had 50 yeah almost 50 people in my division and they were the welders and brazers the, all the pipe fitters and and you know folks who were you know really involved in you know getting the ship fixed now i will say that we were in a shipyard so there are a lot of people from the shipyard you know fixing things on the ship but we also as the division what we called repair division were responsible for pipe fitting i had nuclear welders on uh, on my staff i had a couple of really senior uh, enlisted guys a senior chief um actually and one chief and one senior chief who were both you know super experienced you know 20 plus years in the navy um and you know, like i said almost 50 guys in the division so it was a big job and we had a lot to do i, mean, I spent i mean the, the better part of the the last part of that six months you know getting ready because i mean i spent most of my days on the ship like i i don't i i slept on the ship and stayed on the ship because we had so much work to do yeah so was that um was that hard for you coming into obviously a different ship different situation new crew um, how do you run the respect of your team? Cause you had a pretty large team at that point. You know, I think I was, um, I was, like I said, I was really fortunate to have a phenomenal example in, in, um, in John Chandler. So I did my very best to, um, emulate his approach, which was yeah. get into the details and then explain the bigger picture. So that like, when you have a 17, well, 18 year old sailor, who's like, fixing toilets on an aircraft carrier which is what we had to do yeah because i owned uh of all things the sewage system on the ship and i can i can talk about that for hours but um fondly yeah fondly you know <laughs> it's a shitty job that somebody's got to do it um so the um connecting the big picture for somebody who's like 18 years old and is like why is this important why am i doing this like i signed up for the navy this is what i'm signing up for like but still making sure that all of the the ship's commodes were working like i gotta know that all whatever how many hundred of them were like all worked you know what i mean like yeah so i i mean because i'm the guy who gets a, gets a phone call if there's a you know if there's a um a toilet that doesn't work yeah so i mean i i, I did my, my very best to try to emulate what i learned from john chandler in that role and you know we got the ship out to sea we you know I, I also took over a damage control training team there was a lot of new you know qualifications that had to happen for people to 
train on firefighting and, you know, damage control. I mean, there was a, I, I was given a lot of responsibility. That's awesome, man. That, I mean, and you can't really replace that, especially at your age, you know, to give that level of responsibility. I think that's what's so amazing about military opportunities is that you get a chance at a young age to learn not only about leadership, but command, uh, responsibility. Um, there's just a lot of things that I think you benefit that civilians coming straight out of school, so depending on the company you go to, but some aren't really afforded that. So that's pretty amazing. So you, well, yeah, um, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, I mean, I think about my last time on my first ship, you know, my last day and, and thinking about the experience I had, I got to, um, command, you know, basically, uh, drive the ship into our port, our home port, my last day at sea. And, and I remember the captain, you know, being on the bridge, but he was sitting inside the bridge and he let me drive the ship. Like I gave all the commands. I got us into the basin. I put the twist on and moved us, you know, got us tied up to the tugs and got us alongside. And I mean, Here's a guy, I mean, his career is in my hands. Yeah. Right? And I'm driving his billion dollar worship and he's sitting inside and he comes out. He's like, hey, uh, Jonathan, you need some coffee? It's pretty cold. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it was just amazing. Like the level of um, trust. And then what that does for a young, like Lieutenant Junior Grade, uh, in terms of your confidence is immeasurable. Like yeah. if, you can, if you can find and work for a leader like that, who gives you that level of confidence in yourself, I, I mean, you know, it, it's pretty amazing. Have you read that book, uh, Turn the Ship Around? Uh, no, I haven't. It's um, it, it's pretty amazing because I, I just did a, a book club with a good friend of mine and we were just talking about how it aligns to agile principles and software development. But I think it really talks a lot about leadership. And some of the things you described today, I think would really resonate. So you should put that on your list because I think you'd really find it uh, insightful. But he basically came in and, and said, you know, he took over this, this ship that needed a lot of work to be able to be seaworthy. And he had, there wasn't enough time for him to get into the details. So he had to trust his team. Yeah. And yeah. it was a big shift from what they were used to. And it was really born out of necessity, but it also gave these people some ownership in what was going to happen. And so some of the things you just described really resonated with that. So. Oh, check it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, will. I will. Free plug there. So, so you had two ships, um, done some pretty good work, uh, proven a lot, managed a great team. Were you thinking career military or were you starting to get the itch to do something different? So when I was on the aircraft carrier, I started to do some work with the, the, um, the attorney on board, the JAG. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that because I was just sort of curious about it. Um, and I got to do some courts martial and I got to do some, you know, investigative stuff and I, I got to help, you know, I just was sort of curious about it. So like I didn't have a lot of time, but by the time we started going to see my, my sort of time opened up a little bit because, you know, we were actually operating the ship at that point. Um, and we were starting to get ready for deployment. And I looked into the, the possibility of going to law school, took the LSAT, and then I looked into the possibility of going to law school in the Navy and the captain wasn't sort of warm to that idea. He's like, no, you're, you're a nuke. You're going to stay a nuke. <laughs> uh, um, so because of that, I decided, well, I, you know, I, I think I'll probably get out. And um, I started to look into law school and business school. And then I decided, I, I spoke to a couple of friends who were at business school in, in a couple of different places. And, um, and I just decided that I thought business school would be a better option for me. I thought if I could be in the Navy and be a lawyer, that would be really interesting because I had the operational experience and I could sort of tie that into being a, a, a good JAG. Um, 
but then I thought, well, if I'm going to get out, like maybe I'll just go to business school and I can have that experience, you know, also, yeah, uh, as, as a, you know, as, but also sort of apply it to maybe going to um, investment banking or consulting or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So that's ultimately what you decided to do um, to sort of uh, wind down your military career. Yeah, I think um, I, yeah, I, I was, at that point, I started to look at business schools and I actually applied um, to a bunch of business schools uh, as I was getting ready to leave the Navy. Um, and I got into a couple and, and then Duke, uh, I got into Duke and I, I mentioned this before. I mean, I had considered them as an undergrad. So I was like, oh, excited to go and be a part of the community there uh, as a grad student. And then they came back to me with a, an offer, which was pretty awesome. They basically said, hey, we're oversubscribed for the year, um, your class. Um, we would love for you to take a spot in the next class. And if you do that, and if you can make that work in your schedule, we'll, you know, you'll, there'll be some grant money for, I don't know, it was like a third or it might've been, yeah, it was almost a third of my tuition. So they offered me a grant for, you know, um, you know, the option to, you know, start a year later. So, yeah. So that's when I came down to Atlanta yeah, and that's when we met. So I was actually already into Duke at the time. wasn't sure if I was going to definitely take it, but I, you know, at that point, like, was looking for a job and got the job with Sprint. Yep. And they had they worked with a recruiter that pulled a lot of folks in from the military. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Because yeah, I talked good. to, and I'm, and I'm strangely, yeah. I mean, like the, the the thing that I was thinking about when you asked me to be on the on the um the podcast here was like, what's the main you know sort of theme? Um, mm-hmm. And for me, it's always been this sort of connection. And like, I I just keep going back to this idea of like, I stay connected to the people in my career that I found, you know, sort of influential and like meaningful in my life as friendships and as ongoing, you know, sort of people that I, you know, want to stay in touch with. And it's easier to do now with Facebook and of course, LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I just found that like, you know, that group, that Bradley Morris group, like I'm still friends with Sean Bradley. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was, I know that guy. It's, it's and and he since you know has sold his firm. He's on to doing other things, and he and I were in touch a couple of years ago when I was in the job hunt again, and I was looking at some stuff, and he had some franchise thing that he was doing with a leadership development thing, and I was like, oh, I got to check in with Sean and see what he's doing, and like those connections have you know stood throughout my career as being the thing that allow me to have a career. In mm-hmm. fact. Well, that's one of the big lessons, right? Is networking, and I think that's that's been powerful for both of us through our careers is making those connections, keeping those networks, you know, somewhat fresh because you never know what one you're interested in or what you want to do. And two, there might be an opportunity that doesn't show up on a LinkedIn board or indeed or monster or whatever is hot these days. And, you know, you might get insight to somebody that can make a huge difference in terms of new opportunity as well as just, yeah, it's great. and one of the things that, you know, these alumni associations or, or just any any school worth its, you know, salt, so to speak, yeah. says is like, hey, we have this great alumni um, network. And I mean, I absolutely believe that. Like I have never, I've never not been able to contact somebody at, at a firm that's, you know, a Navy or, you know, West Point or whatever, because like those calls get answered, those emails get returned. Like, yeah, I find it to be, you know, super, you know, comforting to me to know that like, if I need to get to a company, 
I can reach out to somebody there in all likelihood, I'm only a single hop away from almost any company that you can think of. And some people who are pretty senior even and think, oh yeah, I, I can, I can connect to that company or I can connect to that person and, you know, like find a, a way in if I need to. And yeah. that's always been the case. And the same can be said for Duke. And so I find that to be, you know, I will always answer those emails. I will always return those, you know, phone calls because um, I just know that uh, it's been a, you know, I've been a huge beneficiary over the years uh, to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge difference maker. And I think it's, you know, for folks that have been out a while, it's, it's nice to be able to kind of pay that back because there was somebody that helped, you know, us get to where we were. And, you know, certainly in, in 2020, there's lots of awareness around privilege and other things, but um, there's so many different networks that you can actually tap into and leverage that people, not people really use that much. So I think it's, it's really important to remember that. And if it's not a school or a company, you can be intentional about, you know, networking and, you know, different career groups or meetups or start your own. You can volunteer. There's so many different ways to build your network up and retain that, but it takes work. And I think it, as long as it, it is something. And I don't know, I, I think I, I will say that there, this kind of trips into another area that's important to me that I think about a lot, which is, you know, how, how men interact with one another. And yeah. some of this is very, um, you know, sort of, it comes up on my, on my Reno dad's podcast a lot, but we talk about, you know, fatherhood and setting an example as a dad. Um, and I think men typically have relationships that are very proximal and very situational. Yeah. Um, and that can be a hindrance, you know, obviously in your work networks, if you're good at it and you stay network with people, you do it naturally. It, it, hopefully it comes naturally, but for some people it's going to be work yeah. and you have to find ways to make it feel like it's not work and also make it feel like it's, you know, you know, part of your routine. So if I read an article that's sort of, oh, you know, Paul and I once talked about this, I'm going to shoot him an article that I just saw because something made me think of him. Like, that's okay. Like, yeah. that's a reach out. That's a, that's a touch point. And it's also like, it's another link in a chain or, you know, part of the, you know, kind of the, the fabric that you're weaving that is your relationship. Yeah. And you don't have to look at it that way as relationships and not so much as this transactional thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, you know, men a lot of times really don't like to ask for help. We certainly don't like to ask for directions or read instructions, <laughs> right? And I think, you know, there's something to be said about sort of that strong, independent, you know, I've got this type thing. And then you sort of figure it out on your own. And I think that extends to the networking aspect of it too, where it's, um, you know, as, as you have to take more ownership in your own career and less reliance on a company that's not going to take care of you forever, well, you've got yeah. to be the CEO of you, right? And you've yeah. got to be able to manage that. And networking yeah. is a big part of that. Well, the first time um, I really kind of came face to face with that is when I got laid off from AOL. So a couple of years after I was, uh, um, you know, out of business school, I started with AOL and I started there right after they had announced the Time Warner merger. And then when they closed it almost a year later, they let us, a lot of us go, you know, in that you know process. And I've ever, and ever since then, I've always, my, one of my biggest pieces of advice to people, if, if you know, whatever, you know, if anybody ever asks, is, you know, um, <laughs> That's why you're here, man, you're giving out advice. Yeah, is that um, you, and this is what you just said, the CEO of you, I say it a little differently, and it was probably a little more cynical back in the day when I first learned it. Yeah. Which was, um, you know, you need to be as loyal to a company as they are to you, which is to say, not at all. I hate to say it that way because it sounds a little cynical, 
but you are you you are a free agent regardless of you know how long you've been at a company and i mean the the reality of the workforce as it is today in the work working world and it's become even more so you know since when i first got laid off in that 2001 time frame mm-hmm. Um, is that it's much more, you know, like you've got to look out for yourself. Now, that said, you know, we just had this conversation about, you know, kind of relying on others and not necessarily trying to go at it on your own. I think the difference is, is that, you know, loyalty to a company, um, you know, they're loyal to their shareholders. Um, I mean, I think in the right, in the right context with the right leadership, you can be at a company that says, we owe, we owe this to all of our stakeholders, including our workers and including our you know, employees and, of course, our customers and things like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I think it's a, it's a question of leadership. And when you see a leadership team that is clearly only you know, beholden to one set of stakeholders, and that is you know, the shareholders or the people, you know, whatever, that they, they see as the ones you know, with you know, that financial you know, responsibility, yeah. you might not be in the you know, place that's going like, to look out for you. So I don't know. I, I I found myself in that situation, you know, years ago, and I've I've since you know kind of softened on it a little bit because I've been at some companies that have been great. Yeah. Um, and I've seen really great leadership, even you know outside the military. Um, and I think that that has been. It's taken a little while though. I mean that that was a pretty bitter pill at the time. Yeah, it's certainly hard to take, and and I think you know you can start to, you know just kind of dissect like, why did I get laid off or what happened here? What could we have done to prevent that? Or, you know, was it, was it a work performance issue? No. Was it um, just bad timing was, you know, you can kind of go through all these different things and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty traumatic, I think, you know, to losing your job when you don't expect it. Um, But I think, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, it's just like when you're interviewing for a job, it's a two way street. Like you, not only are they interviewing you, the candidate, but you need to be interviewing that company and see if the leadership and the culture and the fit and the opportunity and growth is going to match what you want to do. And I think that, you know, whether you call it CEO of you or, you know, look out for yourself or take care of you, but I think it's, it's two ways. You can't go to work for a company and expect them to take care of everything. um, Like say our parents may have where they were 35 year veterans at, you know, GE or trust company or whoever they work for. Yeah, um, yeah, but I think it, as long as you're getting, you know, fed with professional opportunities and examples of leadership and opportunities to grow yourself, then you're getting some experience out. And maybe that's not the long term, you know, career for you, but it gives you something that you're growing. And if you're not getting that, then that's a huge red flag, because if if you do get laid off or your company shifts around or, you know, for whatever reason, you're you're no longer at that company, you want to have skills to be able to take to your next job. And those skills can actually open up doors as we've, we've seen in our careers where you weren't necessarily looking, but somebody comes knocking and they have, Hey, you know what? I, I've seen you do X, Y, Z, and um, you were pretty impressive here or somebody recommended you. And are you interested in doing this? You know? So it's, yeah, you always have to kind of keep your eyes open and um, just keep weighing your, op- your opportunities and the value that you're creating. Yeah, I think, I mean, those are all absolutely true. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think I, it's funny because like when you did ask me to be on the, on the podcast, I was thinking like, oh, what kind of career story am I telling? What kind of, you know, cause I really don't, I, I don't look at myself as having had a, you know, full on career. I mean, I haven't been in one place for, 
many years at a time. Well, I spent five years at uh, AT&T. I spent about three and a half years at, at Verizon. And, you know, I've done, you know, kind of varying degrees of, you know, kind of what I would call stepping stones in our, what I wouldn't, I mean, it's just not really a career per se, but like, I definitely um, was thinking about what the themes are and, you know, what I would sort of look to in terms of you know, the types of opportunities that always appeal to me. And yeah. Tell me about it, those. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it, it's always been, and this is kind of goes way back, right? When I mentioned I was an English major that went into nuclear power, there's some balance between the really, really technical side of things and then the less technical or the, the what we call the business side of things or the people side of things now. And like the business objectives and the things like that, you can articulate in a way that you have to be able to communicate those and do a really good job of articulate articulating things as I stumble over my words, um, <laughs> you know, that's the part that is, you know, hard for some technical people to do. But then again, you know, if you can't solve a problem with some technology, which is where we are these days, I mean, most, almost everything has some sort of technologies, you know, sort of aspect to it, at yeah. least in, you know, the areas that we're in, um, you have to be able to understand some fundamental things or think in a fundamentally sort of structured way that is what my engineering training provides me. So I think that's the, if I were to kind of, in addition to talking about what I did as a person, you know, communicating and connecting and staying connected to people over the years, I would say that the theme of my career is more around like staying in that intersection between the business, you know, people and, and the technical areas of, uh, you know, of the business world right now. And yeah. being able to, you know, you know, describe what a, a technical solution and in a way that people can connect to and understand and then understand the technical solution at a pretty, you know, detailed level. Yeah. I think the stops that you made um, probably allowed you to demonstrate some of that. It just seems like each of those roles were around solving a business problem, you know, either from a customer success or, you know, driving a team to deliver some technical solution. Um, you know, you also spent some time, you know, kind of consulting on your own. How was that? How was that transition from a big company like AT&T to sort of being your own boss? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I went through a couple of different steps. I mean, I was at AT&T for a while and then I took a job with um, Go Canvas, which is based in Virginia. And, and, and then I had some personal transition, you know, with the divorce and everything like that. So I was kind of, you know, spending time in Reno, Nevada, which is where I'm based now. Mm -hmm. and, and back in Virginia for uh, Go Canvas. And I did that for over a year. I mean, could, probably was closer to a year and a half by the time I sort of look back on the calendar. And it became clear that like they really needed somebody full time in Virginia because of the growth plans for the company. And, you know, I just couldn't commit to that. So we parted ways, you know, and that was, a, it was painful because I really liked the company and I know that they're on, and they have been on a great growth trajectory. Even when I was there, I went from like, I was like the 60th employee and we had almost 200, by the, uh, 150 by the time I left. Um, and then I, yeah, I set out on my own and I had to do that kind of, you know, here in Reno and figure out like, you know, what companies were available. And then I, I, I relied on my um, personal network here in Reno, which was, you know, starting to grow. And I got to, you know, some introductions for a company that was working both in the Bay Area and here in Reno, setting up some um, some presence here. Um, that was a company called MyVR and they do um, vacation rental software. Mm -hmm. And uh, worked with them for almost a year and change. And 
Um, and then again, I went to a business school reunion, you know, back in 2018 and ran into some business school classmates and we were talking about consulting and they said, yeah, I've got some gigs, you know, let's talk. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, I was like lining up to start another uh, consulting gig with a pr private equity company. So, you know, you, those networks, they are so vitally important and I wouldn't have had the, and I was, it was funny because I wasn't going to go to the. I wasn't going to go to the reunion because I was feeling a little bit down. I was like, you know, like fairly newly into the divorce and feeling a little bit like, you know, I, I didn't want to like sort of have to explain that to everybody. Yeah. You know I mean? Although everybody kind of knew. I mean, they all knew what was going on. But I will say this, um, it, and it goes back to that theme we were talking about a few minutes ago about sort of not being a sort of, uh, what, what do you want to call it, a single shingle or, you know, sort of solo flyer or whatever yeah you know, that those moments of vulnerability are really um kind of powerful if you 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 know see them that way mm -hmm. in other words going to a friend and saying in that moment that i did when we were at the reunion like yeah i'm still looking for my next thing and i'm not really sure what i want to be you know doing next but I'm, I'm definitely interested in consulting and she's like oh yeah i've got all these gigs and you know we do all this great stuff and tell me a little bit about, and like all of a sudden you're having a conversation about like what your next opportunity might like look like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a job interview that you didn't necessarily expect. Right. Or well, a, I mean, not a sales I mean, it was pitch. Sort of, right? It was a moment of, like I said, it was, I felt like it was a moment of vulnerability. I was, I was having this conversation with my friend, Amy, and I was like, man, I wasn't really going to come to this. I'm so glad I did because I wanted to see everybody, but I was feeling like all of this, you know, sort of, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess embarrassment is a way to describe it of like the whole, you know, getting divorced and everything. And Amy's like, she's like, whatever. We all love you. We don't yeah. care about that. Like we want to see you. We want to hang out with you and, you know, catch up on all the great things that, you know, everybody, you know, like whatever. I mean, it was just very positive in that moment and I really needed it. And then turns out Amy had these great opportunities for me to work on. So we like work together for the next six months, you know, on some cool projects. I think that's a, that's a great example of kind of an opportunity door that opens up that you didn't expect Oh, absolutely. and, and being aware of, okay, I might, you know, because sometimes it's fear that prevents people or like you yep. said, you know, maybe embarrassment or just, you know, um, inertia. I don't want to get out of the house or whatever. But, you know, when you get into those moments and you have your eyes open, there are opportunities really all around you. Um, you just have to sort of like seek those out as well as tapping into your network. But that's I, I, your story has resonated in almost all these podcasts where people are like, I didn't expect this, but here was an opportunity that popped up yeah. and didn't, didn't yeah. plan for it. But yeah, here's how it is. So yeah, it's exactly, exactly. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in um, voiceover work. Well, um, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because um, it, it happened over the span of, I want to say, five or eight years that I was working as we do in the web and telecommunications realm. And I spent a lot of time on phone calls and web conferences and invariably once a year once a quarter i would say a couple times a year somebody would say hey jonathan you ever worked in radio kind of thing like because you're on the you know web yeah. doing webinars and something like that and i'm like yeah no, i've never done it you know thanks for you know it's very kind of you to say kind of thing right so i you know kind of always filed those things away and there was one time i was presenting for at&t uh project over in china i was in beijing and we were at this conference and i had to present this you know our consulting findings it was like a long, you know, you know, a couple hundred pages of whatever. It was a long conference that I was, you know, and I was in 
in this you know huge room and the interpreter came up to me afterwards and she's like a number of people have commented on the sound of your voice i was like okay <laughs> this is a little strange but okay that's cool and they're all listening to me in english of course and you know they yeah. speak a little bit of english yeah and then I don't know. I uh, I came here to Reno, as I mentioned, um, in 2015. And then um, I started in with a, a group of guys who write a blog called Reno Dads. Reno yep. Dads.com. And, uh, <laughs> and I was with them writing, you know, a couple of stories. And I was like, hey, do you guys want to do a podcast? And I'm like, yeah, we've been talking about that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. And I'm like, I'm like you. I'm like, how do I do this? And I go, right. and I, I go and I find the software and I do some research and I figure out how to publish the thing. And I'm like, I mean, the first few podcast episodes sound like dog dude yeah yeah but like you learn and then you're like oh this is kind of fun and then a couple people were like oh yeah you know you'd be really good at voiceover or whatever i'm like what does that mean you know so i do a little research find out where you know people like how do you go and go about doing it like i mean it's all out there and there's some really good information and then there's some really not so good information and there's tons of like communities online on facebook and i joined a few and i got some training and then I don't know. I just kind of kept kind of getting nudged in that direction with a couple of things I was doing with the voice, uh, with the, you know, the podcast. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> like, I was like one of those things, like, I, I think I mentioned this, you know, uh, you know, like I had this huge disruption in my personal life and I was living here in Reno and I was like, when do you get the opportunity in your late forties to like, I don't know, start over, reinvent yourself, do something completely different. Yeah. And I yeah, it's it was that opportunity and I went for it, you know. That's great, man. And I think too, it's again, it's another reason where you, some people that get so knocked down, they they don't look at that as an opportunity to try something new and, you know, like you said reinvent yourself or do something completely different, you know. I'm going to I'm going to learn how to longboard and, you know, surf or whatever it is, you know. Whatever, yeah, or I'm yeah. going to learn how to make something that I've never done before. And so and I will say that it's it's just provided an, an outlet on the creative side. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, you're the CEO of yourself and CEO of this little company. And I've got to like do the marketing and I've got to reach out and I've got to find the contacts and I've got to build a whole new network in a new category, which has, you know, been its own challenge. Yeah. But, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten gigs here locally in Reno. I've done, I'm on my sixth, seventh uh, audio book right now. Um, That's great, man. Yeah. And um, I will say that I have learned a whole new craft around, um, you know, audio engineering. Um, and I feel like, you know, I'm in the kind of minor leagues when it comes to audiobooks. Like at some point, I'd like to, you know, break into the majors and get into some of the bigger um, publishing houses, but that's just going to take some time. And it's, you know, you, you do have to put the time in and it can't be, you know, you just get discovered. Like you actually have to do all of that work. And so, Thankfully, you know, I've had these experiences as a, you know, working with in sales and now I'm actually, you know, directly, you know, quota carrying salesperson in, you know, in a software company. Yeah. I know the techniques of, you know, using a CRM and, you know, <laughs> and like finding contacts and reaching out and, and again, you know, building a network and, um, you know, using that last project that you did that just got launched to like, launch the next email for, you know, a campaign of like, okay, I'm, I'm in this space now. What do I do? You know, how do I get the next gig? Yeah. That's really amazing. And it seems like, you know, you've sort of packaged together a lot of the skills and talents that you've experienced over the years and you're leveraging it not only for your day job 
but also for kind of your your side hustle with the with the voiceover work and it ties in nicely with your sales piece well yeah and i had to build a website <laughs> i had to go and find you know you know sort of contacts and you know and go out and do email marketing or just one-to-one -one, like really just you know, cold, cold calling, essentially cold call yeah. an email and using LinkedIn for some of that using, you know, Instagram for some of it, building a social media presence with my, um, with my narration, yeah. doing some stuff out there that's different. Like occasionally, like eh, once a month or so I do like a poetry read, I find a poem that I really dig and I'll just do a poetry read and I'll just throw it up there on, on Instagram and see what happens. And, you know, people kind of dig that. It's kind of fun. That's awesome. Kind of giving you a creative outlet, which I've, I've kind of done with this. And I know I've, yeah. I've talked to you a lot about the technology piece and how to host this and inspiration. And now I, I know what you, exactly what you're saying, where I'm trying to figure out what's that next step look like from a marketing perspective and really reaching out to an audience to make sure that this is relevant. Because the first part was really just like taking a step, right? I didn't have anything close to perfect, but I wanted to be able to at least get something going. And that's always been a struggle for me was I always want to have something like great right out of the gate. And that's that waterfall, waterfall versus agile, you know, type of uh, development. And, you know, you're, you're better off getting something out there, refining it, and then you can kind of grow and, and get feedback from your customers and you kind of know better what they want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Absolutely. So last question for you. Um, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> Um, hmm. I knew you were going to ask me this. I'm sure that's a really good answer. Um, sort of totally teed up. Um, I stumped Jonathan. This is great. I wouldn't say, you know, cause it's so interesting. I mean, this is, so, I, I will say this because I, I look at this in, to, in, in sort of an interesting set of, I mean, I would through a certain lens. I don't have many regrets. Yeah. Like I honestly believe, I, I can't say that I've made all perfect decisions and made the right decision every single time. Um, I will say this. Um, I've made decisions around taking jobs or taking gigs that I, I, I think I, I was driven by some, something that was not in my value set or wasn't the highest priority. So for example, making a decision to do a job or go into a direction for a job that you think has, um, say, like the highest pay, the highest paying job, mm -hmm. or the most prestigious, you know, sort of title, whatever. Yep. That doesn't really, really align with your values. Then that might not be the best decision for you. And so here's a, there, there are two examples. The first is I took a job right out of business school um, that was in investment banking. And I believed in my sort of learning through, you know, sort of this or going through this process that it was the best opportunity for me, but it was largely based on the fact that it had this sort of monetary value associated with it mm -hmm. primarily. And I found in the first few months that I was not very happy. And I think it was because there was literally no balance between what I wanted to do in my personal life and what I was you know, being required and asked to do in my professional life. 
Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm sure you've had other guests say this where it's like, it's not all about the money. Mm -hmm. I would say that um, it's, it's less about one dimension of those things, but it's more about like, what are your, what are your values and what, what is really important to you? And if you have, are starting out in a career that you know that you have to do, you know, paying, you know, pay your dues, so to speak. Uh, like, so for example, I didn't, I didn't have that problem in the Navy because I didn't have a family and I was sort of committed to the Navy. And I knew that I wasn't going to have a family while I was in the Navy. Like I had mm-hmm. said that to myself. Yeah. Like I wasn't going to do it while I was a junior officer because I had seen too many sort of junior officers, like, you know, separate from their families for months on end. And I thought, I don't want to live that life. Yeah. But then as I got into being more towards a family sort of orientation and I met my, you know, fiance and then wife in my, you know, last year business school, I, you know, I feel like my priorities changed and then I should have reassessed what was really important for me to take, you know, as my first job or any job for that matter. And I've made that mistake only twice where I sort of said, oh, this is a great opportunity because the pay is really good. I know it's going to be brutal. And then I realized, you know, quickly, you know, a couple months in, I was like, mm, you know, this doesn't really align with my values and I'm missing out on what I want, which is you work to live, not the other way around yeah. in my view. And my values were that I wanted to work only enough. I wanted to work and be a hard worker, but I didn't want it to, you know, sort of become my life. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's really important that, you know, you understand or you understood your values and that didn't match up to the career that maybe you thought, you know, coming out of B school at a really, um, really impressive school that, okay, of course I want to go into investment banking. They make a ton of money. Um, they've got the life, they've got all these perks to it. But yeah, it's, if, if you're not willing to put 18 hour days in and be on the road or whatever it is, that's, that's required by your company. Um, it can seem like a real grind and, I know there's a lot of people that take jobs like I've done that in the past as well, where, you know, the money dictates everything. So of course you're going to take that job, but then you realize, well, money's not everything. And why am I not happy? You know? And so it's, it's hard, I think, take a step back and go, well, do I want to take less money? But if I have my sanity and my stress levels down and I can see my family and, you know, do some other things that are fun and not just this grind then really is worth it. So I think it's really good value. Um, and advice for you to kind of portray for the audience. Well, yeah, I just think that you, uh, you will, you will make those mistakes. I mean, and that's okay, but, and recognize that nothing's permanent, you know, I mean, you, you can always undo that and you can always leave a job. I mean, I left a job last year at the end of the year that I was really unhappy and I had made that same mistake and I, you know, it can still happen. You can still make that mistake and you can still recover from it. So it's, um, it's, it's something that, um, and as your and as your sort of priorities change, I wouldn't say your values necessarily will change, you know, per se. But maybe your priorities change and how you, you know, where you weight certain things in your value matrix and how you look at things. Um, it's okay to say no to the, you know, highest paying job. That yeah. you, you know, it's okay to sort of stay in a job um, if you know that it's giving you the flexibility to do the other things that you want to do and build your side business, you know, your side hustle into an actual business. Yeah. Yeah. As long as that's, that's kind of lines up with what you're okay with. You know, there are some people that totally keep score based on a paycheck um, or a title or the number of people to report to them or whatever the case is, you know, and that's always 
a driver for those types of people. Um, I don't know if you and I are really wired like that, but it's good to recognize what you are and what you want to, you know, go after. So excellent advice. And I will say your first comment too about, you know, you don't really have any regrets. Well, maybe that is a good set of advice too, is don't have regrets, right? Making decisions, you know, cause you can, you know, at Amazon, we call these, some of these decisions where you can kind of back out of a two-way door. So make those quick, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. If you can come back out, if things aren't working out. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of interesting. I mean, I will never forget this. One of my very first swim coaches. And, and when I started coaching um, volleyball and, you know, I did that for a couple of years too, as a volunteer, which was super fun. And I got my daughter on the court when she was like fourth grade. Um, I would say, and that was also goes back to our time in Atlanta. I mean, I can go back to all these things in Atlanta, Paul, like I yeah. got to work with beach, beach volleyball at the Olympics. Yep, and I, I remember that. that stuff. Yeah. I will say that I had a coach in junior high, I guess it was for swimming who said this. And he said, like, regret is a really tough thing to live with <laughs> mm-hmm. in that if you are a swimmer and you work out with a swim team and you do all of the stuff that you do, but you don't put hundred percent into your swim, you know, practices and you don't, you know, kind of like if you finish that last race and you get touched out by that guy and you can say that you didn't put everything into that training, you're going to live with that regret. You're going to say, I didn't put enough into my training. Therefore I could have, I might've been able to meet, beat that. I yeah. might've been able to win that race. And so he, it, it's, you know, he said it in a much more elegant way and I, I, I'm forgetting exactly how he said it, but you want to live in a way that you will look back and not have regrets. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't think, I mean, and, and that can also lead to some paralysis too. Like, Oh, what decision should I make? I mean, yeah. I don't know what, but like, certainly no decision is irreversible or very few are, yeah. um, you know, so you can, you can back out of things like you said, but I think that like, going for things and, you know, really, um, and putting your maximum effort into things, you will, you will never have regret if you put enough effort into the thing that you're doing. Like you can't walk away from something. If you, even if you fail, if you fail, then you did everything you could possibly do in your power, right. You won't have any regrets because you put everything you could into that thing that you were doing, that effort, that training, that whatever it was, and then you will walk away knowing that you did everything in your power in order to make it successful, even if it wasn't successful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's a great advice. And I think, you know, kind of the tail end of that would be, don't be afraid to fail, yeah. you know, uh, cause it's, we're all human, but I think you learn a lot from failure and you, you probably learn more than you do when you succeed, but it's, it gives you good sense into your character, your work ethic, how it ties together. And, and we were talking earlier about networking. Sometimes, you know, people are willing to, either to pick you up and you know sometimes your your uh your greatest moments can come out of something that you failed at so i know i can talk f- several examples in my career about that as well but right, uh, right 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 well cool man well I've, I've kept you long enough man this has been great i really appreciate you walking through your career you've had a number of really interesting twists and turns some great experience and i think the listeners got a lot out of it so thanks a lot for your time jonathan well thanks paul thanks for having me all right take care and good luck on your next audiobook <laughs> thanks man All right.